Joe said, my name's Seth, and it's a joy to be up here uh, teaching for you this morning. If you'll grab your Bibles, go ahead and turn with us to Acts 16. We've been going through Acts for a long time now, uh, and that will bring us into next year as well. But today we are in Acts 16. Um, and the context for what we're going to go through in the text today in Acts 16 comes from Acts 15. So Joe was up here last week teaching us from the end of Acts 15. And we saw that Paul and Barnabas traveled with Judah, Judas and Silas to Antioch right, to deliver the letter from the Jerusalem council. right, Where they decided that we are saved by grace through faith alone and not through the law. So Judas and Silas spend some time in Antioch strengthening the church there with Paul and Barnabas, and then they return. But Paul and Barnabas remain in Antioch, and that officially ends Paul's first missionary journey. Right? So they remain there for a period of time. They're getting ready to depart. Paul says, let's go encourage the churches that we established, right? that God established. Let's go encourage them and deliver the letter, right? the letter of the Jerusalem Council. And then a sharp disagreement arises between two bros, right? Paul and Barnabas, right? They've been through a lot together, and it's over a guy named John Mark, right? Barnabas is like, he's a solid guy, and John's like, I mean, Paul's like, he deserted us. Like, we're, <laughs> whether that's true or not, we don't know, right? We just know what the text says. So we actually see Paul and John Mark, they sail away to Cyprus, and Paul, sorry, Barnabas and John Mark sail away to Cyprus. Paul and Silas head to Syria and Cilicia, headed back in different directions, but what Joe showed us last week is that as we determine and deliver truth, right, we also rejoice and we receive truth as the church, and then finally we prioritize spreading the truth, right? We see the Spirit of God at work as He separates, right? They separate, everybody goes, oh, that's so terrible, but what? Now they have more boots on the ground, the gospel's going, right? It's going to different places through different people. Now today, Acts 16, uh, I've told you several times, I always have trouble coming up with an overarching theme, right? Joe's like, what's your theme? And on Friday, I'm like, I have no idea, right? <laughs> I know what the text says, but I don't know what my theme is. Now, Acts 16, the first 24 verses are especially difficult because it's separated into four segments. And I was like, there's no overarching theme, right? But luckily, I have Joe's knowledge and experience. So today, the main idea we're going to see... Uh, I want us to think about being sensitive to the Spirit's guidance, right? The Spirit that dwells in us as believers, being sensitive to how it guides us in all things, right? And speaking of guidance, I have a story of why I hate Apple Maps, right? <laughs> guidance. Uh, multiple, but there's one main story. So some of you know, I, I used to play a lot of disc golf. I would travel around the country uh, in, before children, obviously. Uh, playing disc golf competitively, and me and my brother and a friend of ours were driving up to Illinois to play in a big tournament up in Illinois, and my brother's navigating, right? I just know that my brother's navigating. I'm driving. We're somewhere in Indiana. I don't know where. It was dark. There was a lot of corn, right? We're somewhere in Indiana, and we go through this small town, completely deserted, right? We see two kids riding their bicycles at like 9.30 at night. This is the weirdest town I've ever been to, been to in my entire life. And then we're driving up, and my brother's phone says, you know, take a left in 500 feet. And we come up to this intersection, and left is a gravel road. Gravel road. And I said, Zach, what in the world are you using to navigate us? And he said, Apple Maps. And I said, okay, delete Apple Maps. We're not using Apple Maps ever again. It's 2021, or 
2019, I'm not turning on a gravel road like at 9.30 at night in the middle of Indiana. I'm not doing it. So what guides us is important. And just for your edification, I trust Google Maps, and you should too. Don't trust Apple Maps. Don't trust Apple Maps. Trust Google Maps. Uh, it'll get you where you need to go. But what guides us is important, right? What guides us through our life as believers, the Spirit dwelling in us, guides us in multiple different ways, and that's what I want us to see this morning. So we're going to separate up the text this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, and then talk through a little while, and then we'll keep on going through the text in that manner. So join me as we read God's Word, Acts 16, 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Let me pray for us really quick, and we'll dive in. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that through your special revelation to us, we have your word meant to guide us in our lives as believers and our lives within the church. Uh, may your truth that's in Acts 16 be revealed to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in the first five verses, what I want us to see is the thought of pursuing unity and godliness. Unity and godliness. There's a connection for unity from what we went through last week at the end of Acts 15. But we'll get there in just a second. So pursuing unity and godliness. So Derby and Lystra, this is where they come through. And we're familiar with these because in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas flee to Derby and Lystra when they hear of a plot to kill them, right? They were in Iconium. They flee to Derby and Lystra. And this is actually where Paul gets stoned, right? Paul gets stoned in Derby or Lystra. Can't remember. Read the text. But these were cities in the districts in the district of Lyconia, in the province of Galatia. So this is Galatia. This, you know, we talked about Galatians a couple weeks ago. The entire book of Galatians is written to answer the question of how are we saved, right? The same thing that they discussed there at the Jerusalem Council, writing to the church in Galatia. This whole region was Paul's response to that, right? But in Lystra, Paul meets the disciple. Timothy, the disciple. This is how Timothy is described right off the bat. He is a disciple, and he is a son of a Jewish woman who is a believer, but his father was a Greek. So, we have to ask the question of who is Timothy, right? Who was Timothy, and why is this important? So, Timothy is described as a disciple. He is well spoken of by the brothers, right? The believers that are already there in Lystra and Iconium. He's well spoken of. He's likely very young. Late teens, early 20s, young guys, don't take that as offense. It's young. Um, we were all there once. Anyway, so he's likely young. Later in his ministry, right, Paul is writing to Timothy in First and Second Timothy. And in First Timothy 4, he says, let no one despise you for your youth, right? So we know that happens after this. So he's very young at this point, but he's already described as a disciple of Christ, right? This is something that we see from him right out the gate, Right? He, is, he is godly, and we see that he has a sincere faith that began in his family. Right? His faith that he has in Christ is due to the diligence of his family teaching him. Right? His 
his family graciously teaches him. 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul writes to him and says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. This is how Paul describes Timothy. So at a young age, in a culture that is not valuing age very much, well, values it if you're older in age and you have more experience, right? The disciple Timothy is already pursuing godliness at a young age, which begs the question, how, right? He's in a place where the church was not established yet. The gospel is going forth, but there was no church. There was maybe a synagogue here. But how is he attributed to being a disciple and a godly-seeking man at such a young age? It is because the faithfulness of his grandmother and of his mother. So I don't want us to overlook this. Right, parents, grandparents, the most important job in your life is not your occupation. It's not your retirement. It's not the status or position that we hold in our community. It's certainly not our hobbies. Your most important job is to train and disciple your children and your grandchildren in the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the most important job in your life. Right, and we see that here at a very young age, Timothy is already viewed as a disciple, right? He is already growing in his faith and maturing his faith at a young age, right? And that is a testament to his family. That is a testament to his grandmother and his mother. Men, don't think that it doesn't mention guys here so you're off the hook, right? No, your most important job is training and discipling your children and your grandchildren. So why does Paul, we see that Paul wants Timothy to join them, why? Well, Paul sees quickly in his description of Timothy, he's raised in the faith, right? He's respected by the brothers that are in that area, but also his father was Greek. What does this mean? That means his mom's Jewish, his father's Greek. Culturally, Timothy has access to both cultures, right? This is impactful, right? He has access to both cultures. Think of traveling around the world. If you can identify with that culture in some way, they receive you a lot better, right? They receive you a lot better. If you can speak their language, right? I have a, who knows how long it'll take me. I have a desire to be able to speak a little bit of Nepali before we go back, because when you identify with where you are in the world through their understanding of the culture of their language, they receive you better. And Timothy already has this just by the nature of his background. So Paul desires for him to come with him. So the indwelling Spirit of God, right, is already through Paul and through Silas building up leaders for the church. We know Timothy's future because we have the text, right? Timothy goes on to be a great pastor in the church at Ephesus at a very young age. So the Spirit dwelling in them is already building up leaders for the church, right? Paul has just joined with Timothy, right? And eventually, we see further in 1 Corinthians 14, this relationship between Paul and Timothy. Timothy comes to be known by Paul's words as his beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Paul understood this assignment. Was, his, was Timothy his actual child? No. But Paul is starting this process of making disciples, growing them up into leaders, and then sending them out. Right? We see this from the beginning of the church of Acts, and Paul is putting this into place. But then we get to verse 3, right? And verse 3 has a lot of ugh in it, right? So, verse 3, Timothy is circumcised. 
Timothy is circumcised. And everybody goes, hold up, Seth. Right? We just went through two weeks ago where the Jerusalem Council rules this is not necessary. For our salvation, this is not necessary. Is this a contradiction? Quick answer, no. It's not a contradiction. But why? Why is Timothy circumcised? Well, we see right after this. Paul wanted Timothy, verse 3, to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Everyone in this area knows Timothy, knows his background, right? So, this is not contradicting what the Jerusalem Council just decided. Paul was considering here what is best for the church, right? We knew at this point in time in the church being circumcised or some uncircumcised did not contribute to anything, right? It was law. That law was fulfilled in Christ. We're not bound by that anymore. But Paul sees what is best was the church, right? Timothy was already considered a disciple, so he did not have to become circumcised to then be considered a disciple. No, he's already doing the work. So the calling of the Gentiles into this faith, remember, it's not widespread yet. The word is getting out. But everyone doesn't know that the Gentiles have been grafted into the people of God yet. So in the sensitivity of the timing of this, right, it's not everywhere known yet. So Paul's considering what's best for the church and for Timothy as a leader. The Jews could have looked at Timothy and said, hmm, we're not going to trust him because he hasn't, right, abided by what we hold so precious, right? They had to be circumcised. This was their understanding. So, considering what's best for the church, they go ahead and do this so that Timothy can be more effective in his ministry with the gospel. So I don't want us to see this as a contradiction at all. I want to seize this as Paul is seeking, seeking unity in the church, right? The same reason the letter is going out to unify the church, Paul is embodying that letter right now, right? Right through teaching this here. But this is not always the case. If we go to Galatians chapter 2 really quick, we see in Titus's case, right, when this word eventually gets out, right, Paul doesn't require, he actually comes to Titus's defense and saying, Titus does not need to be circumcised because of these reasons that the Jerusalem Council decided. So the word is more widespread then. The, the, the ruling at the Jerusalem Council was more well known then. So this is not law. This is Paul seeking unity in the church. So he's putting it into practice, right? Holding on to clear truths at this point in time and setting aside or not acting. Paul had the freedom here not to do this, right? He could have told Timothy, you have the freedom not to do this. But he's seeking unity in the body, right, for the sake of the gospel. So out of great love and care for the spiritual growth of the Jewish believers in the church in this area, Timothy is circumcised. So Timothy joins them, right? Joins them as they deliver the decisions, what was concluded at the Jerusalem Council, as they deliver these, right, to many cities in this area. And what does it say? The churches were strengthened in their faith, and they increased in the numbers daily. So, bottom line, Timothy's pursuit of godliness here came through the obedience of his family. Timothy is only at this point in history, as he meets Paul and joins his missionary team, he is only able to do so because of the faithfulness in his family fulfilling the greatest commandment that was given back in Deuteronomy 6, right? Love the Lord your God with all that you are and teach it to your kids. That's why Timothy is in this position. 
And then Paul's pursuit of unity in the body ultimately comes from the Spirit's guidance within him, pursuing unity in the church, and it enables gospel advancement, right? It enables gospel advancement specifically with the Jews in this area that we're still hung up on this. So how do we know this is the Spirit's guidance? We're going to get to that really soon, but ultimately, John chapter 16, what we're going to see is that the Spirit dwelling with the body of Christ is for our advantage. He is our helper, and he was at work in Paul, helping him walk wisely, convicting him and those around him and the people that he's proclaiming to, convicting them of sin and guiding them in the truth of the gospel. That is what the Spirit does. So second point I want us to see, verses 6 through 10, following the Spirit's guidance. Let's read really quick. Acts 16, 6 through 10. And they went to the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come to, over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we see that Paul is following the Spirit's guidance, and Paul and Silas and the people with him following the Spirit's guidance. So we see this text right here in verse 6, and then again a little bit further. Verse 6, they had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then they try again a little bit further down to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. What does that mean? Right? What does that mean? Imagine like Utler trying to go and a wall grows, right? No, that's not what happened, right? But what does it mean that they knew the Spirit was not permitting them to move forward? So how do they know this was forbidden? What does the Spirit-controlled life look like? So this this region of Asia, this would have been Asia Minor and would have included areas in modern-day Turkey, but cities that were recognized here, Ephesus, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossae, right? These are cities that we know Paul is going to write to in the future, right? Some of them. But how did they know the Spirit was limiting them at that point in time to going to Asia? Well, we have to ask the question, what is the Spirit-controlled life look like? What do we know about the Holy Spirit, and how does He work? Yes, He, the Holy Spirit. It's referred to in Scripture as a He, just like the Father and the Son are. So, what do we know about the Holy Spirit? Well, Acts 1.8, we knew that the Holy Spirit was promised, right? The Holy Spirit was promised the apostles would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them, right? And they would take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. That was the promise. That is where it all starts, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, this promise is fulfilled. The Holy Spirit descends on the apostles. They proclaim Christ in multiple language, languages. Men, quote, verse 6, from every nation under heaven were around them when this is happening, and they heard this proclamation of the gospel in their own language, right? This is what the power of the Spirit is doing, right? They didn't run, a, you know, run to the side and get... Uh, subscriptions at Babel, right? We hear Babel all the time to learn languages, right? They didn't run and learn these languages. No, this is the work of God, right? This is the work of God. So the Spirit is now indwelling in them. But what does this mean for us, right? Well, 
all redeemed followers of Christ, all people who have trusted in Christ's work at the cross, receive the indwelling Spirit of God at repentance and belief. And by receiving, your, by receiving the Holy Spirit at conversion, your salvation is sealed. Ephesians 1, 13-14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The fact that Spirit dwells in us in believers means He will hold us fast. Right? It's a testament to the work that He's doing in our sanctification. He's doing making us more like Christ. And He will hold us fast till we... It is a guarantee of our inheritance till we take possession of it, till we are, are taken out of this suffering world and gone to be with the Father. The Holy Spirit dwells with us and He holds our salvation fast. John 16, 5-15. through 15, I'll save you. I'm not going to read the whole text. But... In this, John 16, we see that He is our helper. Christ looks at His apostles and it says, it's to your benefit, it's to your advantage that I leave. And I imagine they go, what do you mean, right? We need you here, we can't do this without you. He says, the helper is coming, it's for your advantage. He will come and dwell with you, He will reveal sin, and He will guide you in all truth. Right? And then the Helper will not only be with the twelve that Christ has chosen, He will be with the entire church across the entire world. God is with us. Right? The Holy Spirit is fully God. Right? It's not just some fairy floating here to the side or the force like we feel in Star Wars. No, the Holy Spirit is fully God. He teaches us, John 14 and Galatians 5, He teaches us, all things concerning God and Christ. And he puts to death the desires of the flesh and he transforms the believer completely. Only God can do those things. Only God can do those things. And this looks back to when God promised this. Right? We see in the Testaments of, of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God says, I will redeem, I will draw back a people for myself, I will be their God, they will be my people, I will put my spirit in them. This is a fulfillment of what God said hundreds of years before. So the spirit-controlled life, back to our original question, how do they know that they were forbidden for going forth? Well, the spirit-controlled life seeks the will of the Father, primarily. Speak, seeks the will of God by, Luke chapter 9, dying to yourself daily taking up your cross and following Jesus in prayer and in knowing what is God's will for the gospel and the church to go forth. They knew this. And seeking this in prayer is what Paul and Silas and Timothy are doing. And in seeking the Lord's will, a vision comes to Paul, right? We see this, a vision. I haven't had any visions, right? I don't know if you've had visions, but I haven't had any. But by the revealed word of God, we know what God's will is for our life. Right? If you don't know what God's will is for your life, come to me. I know it. It may, know different. It may look different than it is for me in the details, but I know what His will is for your life. It's to make His gospel known and for His church to be spread to the nations where it has not gone. So they knew this, right? So a vision comes to Paul. They respond immediately, right? They don't say, hey, let's, you know, let's have a caucus. Let's you know, think on this vision. Of, let's share your opinion of my vision. No, right? They respond Immediately, the Spirit of God dwelling in them and dwelling in us guides us in all truth according to God's will 
as we deny ourselves and exalt Christ. Right, as John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. That is following Christ. Oh, man. Point number three, we're going to read verses 11 through 15. 11 through 15. So they go to Macedonia. And what I want to see is the people of God embracing the Lord's salvation. Verses 11 through 15, let's read it together. The conversion of Lydia. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district in Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city for some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside to the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira and sell a seller of purple goods, who is a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So embracing the Lord's salvation. Before we get started here, verse 11 changes us a little bit. It changes in sentence structure. Notice. Verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we, right? Why does it say we? The first section is saying they. They were doing these things. Now it says we. So the change in we here means who is the author, right? Who's the author of this text? Luke, right? He wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Our brother Luke has joined them. At some point in time, we don't get the details of his joining, but he has joined them on their journey, Right, so Luke, so now you have Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke all joined together. And they go down to Philippi. Right? This was a Roman colony since about 30 years before Christ came and was a leading city in this district. Right? Think of a big city in, in, in our region, district of Macedonia. So verse 13, the group heads out of the city gate to the riverside, right? expecting there to be a gathering for prayer, this is likely because, right, to form a synagogue in a city, you needed 10 Jewish men who were heads of their household, right? You needed 10 Jewish men leading a family in their household required to form a synagogue, and this area doesn't have that, right? So not only does this area not have the gospel, really, they don't really even have the law, right? This is a very lost, pagan, Gentile area in this region, but in these cases, the faithful that were there, according to the law, they would pick other places uh, out in nature to read and to pray together. So, then we're introduced to Lydia. She's from a city, Thyatira, that I can't really pronounce, right? In the Roman province, the city was in the Roman province of Lydia, right? So this is maybe where the, her, her origin of her name is from. But we see that she has this sexual successful business in selling expensive purple goods. Who bought purple goods during these days? Royalty, right? Royalty and the wealthy. And it describes her, the text describes her as a worshiper of God. So she was aware of who the God of Israel was, right? She wasn't oblivious to it. She's described as a worshiper of God. This reminds us of Cornelius, right? In Acts chapter 10, where God's word said in verse 2, Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So these are pretty parallel 
people, right? They're aware of who God is. They're doing their best to follow the law. They're giving to people. They're generously giving. They're praying continually, and they're leading their entire household to do the same. So, they both alike believe in the God of Israel, but had not become, it doesn't describe them as being Jewish, right? They had not become proselytes, right? These proselytes would be a Gentile who converts and conforms to the Jewish faith and the Jewish law. No, they were aware of the God of Israel, but they were not following, they were not Jewish, right? They were not proselytes. But they feared God and worshiped him. So the question in here is what's lacking, right? Isn't that good enough? They feared God, they worshiped him, they give generally. Well, Verses 14 and 15 say this. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thatcher, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptized and her whole household as well. So her eyes were open to what she was missing, which was what? The gospel, right? We've been seeing it all throughout Acts 16. I mean, throughout Acts as a whole. What did Paul say to her? Well, that's not really recorded here. We don't really know. But I think, using some logic, we can understand that the message of Christ while he was on earth and the message of the apostles was clear, right? It began, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Christ starts his ministry of teaching by saying, repent and believe in the gospel, right? And he's saying it to people who were faithful to the law, right? So to build upon what we learned the past couple weeks of how the law cannot save us, right? This is the same message that Paul is taking forth. Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. And then that's continued. Acts chapter 2.38, this is Peter preaching at Pentecost, right? The Spirit has descended, right? A lot of people think they're drunk. They're not drunk, right? The Spirit has just come upon them. They're speaking in different known languages. And then Peter stands up and preaches the sermon at Pentecost. They respond and say, what do we do? Right? We know what we've heard from you is true. How do we respond? And this is what Peter says. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the same message that Paul and Silas are taking forth. The law could not save Lydia. As much as she was a worshiper of God or revered God or feared Him, that could not save her from her sin. So Lydia is baptized. Her whole household is baptized. And the church at Philippi is born. The church at Philippi is born. And Paul later in his ministry, when he's in prison, he writes to the Philippians. He writes to this church, and it's a fair bet to say that Lydia was likely still there, maybe. I don't know, but I'd like to think she's maybe still there serving in the church. But when Paul writes to them, what does he write to them? What does he tell them to do? He writes to them, Philippians 1, 3-5. He opens his letter saying, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This was the first day. This is when the church started in Philippi. And he's saying, my heart is filled with joy, even here in prison. I'm writing to you, and I'm rejoicing because of your partnership in the gospel with me. You took the words that God brought through me to you seriously, and you're doing it. Right? We are partners together in this mission. So the Spirit of God indwelling the disciples, 
right? A dwelling the apostles, it's making, he is making disciples through Paul and through Silas, establishing churches through what? Simple obedience to the gospel. Simple obedience to taking the gospel forth. Take it, we're obedient, we take the word forth. God does the work in building up leaders and establishing his church, right? I know that's a very simple way of putting it, but sometimes it doesn't have to be that complicated, right? It doesn't have to be that difficult, Then finally, we get to 16 through 24. The church has been established in Philippi. And they remain there for a period of time. And what I want us to see in 16 through 24 is Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke protecting the faith. Preserving it for what a faith that actually saves, a gospel message that actually saves people from their sins. Protecting the faith. Read with me, 16 through 24. And as we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept up doing for many days. Paul had become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Verse 19 but when her owners saw that her, their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Verse 23, And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in the prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stocks. So protecting the faith. The apostles encounter a slave girl who has a spirit of divination. What does that mean? Well, think of a medium, one who claims to be a go-between, right, or communicate with the spirits of the dead, right? But this is likely, just like we saw throughout Christ's ministry, This is likely just uh, their interaction with another demon-possessed person, right? Someone who is not in the right mind but is controlled by a demon of the enemy, right? She follows them proclaiming these men, right? What does she say again? Let's turn back really quick. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That doesn't sound that bad of a message, right? I, I would say that's true, right? So what's wrong with this? Right? Why does Paul get greatly annoyed, apart from her just pestering them over days, I guess? Why does he get greatly annoyed? Why does he feel the need to call the Spirit out of her? Well, Satan is the father of lies. Right? Satan is the father of lies, opposing the church and the gospel going forth. But here, Satan and his demons conceal themselves in, de- in a deceitful display of truth. Right? So they're proclaiming, yes, what is true. But what's wrong with that? Well, the people in Philippi likely knew who this girl was. Right? She was probably out in the streets performing, uh, quote, miracles, if you will, or, or telling what would happen or what has happened. Um, and they're making money off her. They have monetized this. Right? They're making money. They're making a profit off of this girl. So who she was and, and what they did together as a group was known... Right? And just knowing the nature of this city, right? A synagogue not being there, 
She was not connected, and they were not connected to God or the truth in any way. Right? So there's, there's an understanding of who they are and what they're doing. And now Paul and Silas come around, they're proclaiming the gospel, and she says, yeah, what they're saying is true. Well, if Paul and the apostles would have allowed this to continue, some might assume a collusion or partnership between the two. Right? Well, why is that dangerous? Doing so could make the gospel of Jesus Christ just another powerless message. Right? Just something else that somebody else is proclaiming on our streets. It could lose its momentum in the area or even become a joke to some people. Like, uh, we've, you know, this is another thing, just like that, that group and the slave girl that, that claims to know all these things. And Paul, seeking to protect the faith, seeking to keep the message of the gospel pure, he does so by calling this demon out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, why in the name of Jesus Christ? Well, that is where authority is found, right? We talked about that. Me and Joe and some of the other guys were at Starbucks yesterday morning talking about the authority of Scripture. And then it, it comes because God said, this is my word, right? And when, when Christ departs at the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And because of that, go. Right? So Christ has the authority to make this happen. So this was necessary to protect the faith. But doing so, calling this demon out, would prove quickly costly. Right? It proves quickly costly. Proclaiming the truth will be costly. At some point in our lives, if we take a stand for what's true, it's going to cost us. It may be a permanent cost. Right? It may be a temporary cost, but it is costly to remain and to stand and be steadfast and unwilling to step aside from what is true. And I'm sure uh, that, that speaks very true to a lot of things going on in our society today. So, the slave girl's owners, they seize Paul and Silas. I know you're wondering, I was wondering this, why just them? Right? Timothy and Luke were also there, right? Why not them as well? Well, they go before the magistrates and they proclaim, proclaim these men are Jews. Right? These men are Jews. So Luke and Timothy's background right, as Greeks, as, as Gentiles, keeps them away from this specific persecution. Right? I know we're thinking, I don't know, the group is now separated, but this is also kind of benefit in some way. Right? Luke and Timothy are still able and out still able to proclaim the truth. We're talking about the benefit of Timothy's background being connected to both cultures. He's not seized. Him and Luke are not seized because of their backgrounds, and they can still be working, right? They can still be taking the gospel forth. But because they were Jews, Paul and Silas are seized, right? They're brought before the city leaders. They're charged with disturbing the city, advocating and pushing customs that are foreign and unlawful for the Romans. Well, a reality check for me this week, as we heard from our brother um, over in Nepal, Pradeep. The gospel and the life following Christ was an assault on their culture as Romans, and it remains an assault on all cultures today. The gospel is an assault to us as people, regardless of what culture we are in around the world. In most major world religions, culture and religion and family are all tied together, 
right? So when one of them changes, it has family impacts. It has social impacts and sometimes has legal impacts for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So a quick update from what's going on in Nepal. I said something to the brothers um, Thursday night when we gathered at my house with kids. But um, Pradeep reached out to us recently. And where they had the, held their youth conference uh, a few weeks ago when the guys from MDR were there, in Dehran. Dehran is about a 50-minute drive north of Bharatnagar, where we were for the majority of the time where we were there. Well, in Dehran, um, Hindu radicals have raised up against the church, um, accusing the church of, of killing a cow and wanting to tear this church down. And they were mad because this church was built near a temple. So, destruction of churches starts happening. These Hindu radicals are really causing a lot of dam damage and violence. Um, and this becomes a national thing. So then people from all over Nepal and likely northern India start traveling to this area to join this persecution. Right? And this is two weeks ago. Right? This is exactly what they've been dealing with for the last two weeks, very near to where we were. Right? And because of this, the venue that they were able to host the youth conference at called them and said, we can't host you anymore because we don't want to be associated with Christians. Right? So there's social impacts to what's going on there. Right? But in the midst of all of this, and in reading our brother's words that he sent to us, asking for prayer and handling this wisely, but ask for prayer for the strength of the brothers and sisters there, um, that song came to my mind, right? All, all we have is Christ. And for them, and in their situation there right now, Christ is enough. He's enough. He's everything that they need. Right? As they head towards persecution and, and the destruction of the churches that they've worked so hard for, Christ is everything that they need. And Jesus demands us above our family. Right? And above our friends. Jesus above family. Jesus above friends. Jesus above our comfort, our security. Right? Jesus above all things. That's what He demands of us. And it's costly. It's costly in our lives. And in protecting the faith here. And in separating the Spirit of God from the spirit of evil. Right? The spirit of anything else. They do so. They protect the faith. And because of their obedience, they're beaten and thrown into prison. And knowing the impact to our lives and those who we share Christ with, whether it's near or far, those who we share Christ with, if God saves them from their sin, there's going to be impacts in their lives as well. My question is, knowing that there will be impacts, right? regardless if we're sharing in Nepal, somewhere else in the world, or here, is that causing us to stay silent? right? Or are we stepping up to the plate like Paul and Silas were doing, protecting the faith for the sake of Jesus' name, not for the sake of their own reputation, are we standing up with no fear? We're not staying silent. Staying silent is not an option. It's not an option for you as a husband, right? To stay silent and let your home just lead itself the way it will. It's not an option for you as a mother or a grandmother or a grandfather to stay silent as our kids are influenced by all different things in this world. And as we take the gospel forth, 
We should pray for the Spirit's guidance in truth to protect the faith, doing so lovingly and boldly, but knowing it is not an option for us to stay silent when it comes to gospel proclamation, and it's going to cost us. But that's okay, because Jesus is enough. He is worth it. His name is worth it. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about when Christ returns and and we'll be redeemed from this present suffering, right? It's going to be worth it. And for those that we share with and that God saves, it's going to be worth it for them, whatever they're going through. Whatever they're going through now, whatever they go through because of their newfound faith, it's going to be worth it. So as we go forth and and trying to understand the scope of what this passage means, I guess I would just encourage us in your daily life, as you seek to lead your home well, as you seek to do well in your job, as you seek to do all things that we have to go through in our lives, Let's pray for the Spirit's guidance in truth, right? He dwells within us as believers. Only He can guide us to what is true, right? We pray for Him to guide us in our understanding of who God is, who Christ is, and what we're supposed to do with our lives. Pray for His guidance as we know our brothers Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke were doing as they took the gospel forth amidst greater suffering and danger than we will likely ever understand, right? Which means what? We have... Vast, vastly more freedom than they do or our brothers in Christ over in Nepal do. So I hope that encourages you this week um, as it's been a great encouragement for me over the past week and a half. So let's pray, church family. God, we thank you for today. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that your word never fails us. And we thank you that when you save, that you are enough. The work you did at the cross was enough. Lord God, you looked down on sinful man and you did not turn aside for us, but you humbled yourself and you came. And you met us in our sin, but then you said, I don't want to leave you there. I want to bring you back to where you belong. A life with purpose. A life that glorifies God and takes the gospel forth. That is our goal. That is our will. That is your will. Lord God, in light of your word this morning, May we not undervalue the Spirit of God dwelling in us, the power that comes with that, and knowing that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear what the rest of today or tomorrow holds, because later today and tomorrow you will still be king, you will still be reigning, and your gospel will go forth. And may you do so through us this week. Lord God, if there's people in this room that do not know you, if they are not redeemed, if they have not placed their faith and trust in you alone, God, may you convict their hearts today. May your spirit be at work today, and may you bring them to an understanding of their sin. Lord God, may you save them from their sin today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.